Uh, Because Jesus died in our place and because he was raised victoriously on the third day, we have every reason to praise, to sing, to shout. Uh, We have every reason to go to him in prayer. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. And Father, we praise you as we have already in song. We praise you for Jesus dying on our behalf, raised for our justification. We would have no hope apart from you coming to us, Lord. His coming to earth and his rescue here on earth, dying in our place, is so picturesque of our problem, our need, our our desperate state. And so we thank you, Lord. You didn't just give us a model. You didn't just show us an example. You didn't just carve a path for us to trod. But Lord, you have given us life. You have resurrected us in him. And so we're thankful, Lord, for the privilege to rehearse these truths We're thankful, Lord, to sing them back to you. And Lord, we're thankful for your word, which tells us all of this. These are not our thoughts, Lord. We wouldn't make up songs with these things in them apart from your word showing us your ways, your truth, and what happened in history. And so help us, Lord, as we look to your word more intently now. Help us, Lord, to taste and see that you're good The resurrection signals Christ's authority and his victory and his power. And so we ask, Lord, for your authority to be demonstrated here in our lives, for you to enter into our hearts and pull up what needs pulling up and lay down what needs laying down. Lord, we pray that your power would be apparent even in the simplicity or the foolishness of your message being preached. Lord, we pray that you would be near, you'd comfort, you'd convict, you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and you'd do it for your glory, Lord. Do great things because Jesus was raised and now lives and lives forevermore. Amen. You could be seated. But what does it mean that Jesus was raised from the dead? What does it matter? There are some historical events that whether they happened or not, it really doesn't impact my life all that much one way or another. I believe that some astronauts, for instance, landed on the moon in 1969. I don't think the pictures were doctored up. I think it really happened. But it doesn't have much real effect on my everyday living, besides maybe me being impressed. If you ask someone, maybe even an astronaut, what does it mean that we landed on the moon in 1969? He might say, well, it represents technical advancement. Uh, It means something about willpower, human ingenuity, or something like that. And I would say, okay, you're right. But the iPhone actually has more impact on my life than, than the moon landing. I think some people think of the resurrection of Jesus like the moon landing. No doubt some people in America have 
a very passionate belief that it happened. And no doubt some people in America have a very emphatic belief that it did not happen. It could not have happened. I think most Americans, though, think, yeah, potato, potato. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. I mean, what's the difference? Kind of like astronauts on the moon. You just go, huh, how about that? That's something. What's for dinner? All right, you just go about life. What does it change? What does it mean? Well, I think the resurrection is more like the historical reality, the historical fact, and has a similar effect as a wedding day. August 2nd, 1996, my wife and I had a big old party, you could say. We call it a wedding. And as we look back on it, it's not just a, a nice memory. It wasn't just a big celebration. That's a fork in the road. It's a game changer. My identity changed with that. Even my appearance changed a little bit <laughs> with that, come to think of it. It changes everything, this historical event of a wedding day. All of life is lived out almost like you're looking through your wedding ring. It changes home life, no doubt, right? It changes your existence and, and what you do and, and what pleases you when you're with your wife, your husband. But even when you're apart, I mean, you can't forget that you're married for a whole hour. You can't pretend that you're not married for a half hour. I mean, you can, but it, it has consequences, right? Devastating consequences. So with the resurrection, Scripture speaks of its significance and its meaning in a number of ways. It is rich. It's like a diamond with many facets, many angles to it. So the Bible says that the resurrection is confirmation. Confirmation that Jesus is who he said he was. Confirmation that what he said is true. It can be trusted. He is Messiah. He is Son of God. He is God in the flesh, the God-man. All his miracles, in a sense, give credence to what he said. It gives veracity to what he said that he is and what he came to do. And the resurrection especially, it's the biggest miracle of them all. So you could say, he was raised in order, to be believe, in order to be believed in, embraced and trusted. But the Bible also says, and this one probably is the first that comes to mind, we've sung a lot about it this morning, his resurrection means salvation. Salvation is possible because he went from death to life. His death and resurrection formed the basis for being forgiven or justified. So Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses. That's Friday. And he was raised for our justification. That's Sunday. It's a gospel weekend with bookends, and both of them are essential. You can't just have a death without a resurrection. The resurrection is is the stamp, the approval that the death was more than just a death. 
His resurrection also in scripture is talked about in terms of victory. He rose in order to show his defeat over his enemies. He's victorious over Satan who couldn't conquer him at the cross. Victorious over sin in those sinners who nailed him to the cross. Victorious over death because, well, he stopped being dead and now lives forever. Scripture also says that the resurrection means for us that there's hope beyond these crumbling bodies. These bodies get old. Things start to fall apart. One of the laws of thermodynamics is entropy. Everything's heading towards destruction. Our bodies are proof of that, right? New aches, more falling out, this not working like it used to. And eventually it just goes into the grave and decay really takes place. Well, Jesus' resurrection was the first of many. The Bible says that after we die, when Jesus brings in a new heaven and a new earth, we will receive a body like his. He is, what the Bible says, the first fruit of what's to come. Because in eternity, God's plan is not for Christians, or anyone for that matter, to be disembodied, ethereal beings just floating about and not even crashing into each other, just going through each other. No, his plan is that eventually there'll be a perfection of the physical realm. And part of that includes physical bodies being renewed, just like Jesus's, the first, the prototype. Well, I've preached Easter messages on each of these angles of the resurrection, these meanings of the resurrection, these implications of the resurrection, and rightly so. They're all very important. They're all very true. But one of the most shocking, probably the least talked about meaning or implication of the resurrection is this, that Jesus was raised in order to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life that we're born spiritually dead, and there's no salvation unless he awakens us to spiritual life, and in doing so, he leads us into a new creation. It's unseen so far. It's mysterious, but it's as real as anything. We see that very clearly in Ephesians 2. That Jesus was raised to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And in doing so, he leads us into a mysterious, seemingly odd, glorious, unseen, but real, new creation. How do I know that this is a, a most shocking but least talked about implication of the resurrection? Well, I think we sang it about six times this morning so far. And probably not many of us noticed it. So let's dig into this. It's important. Ephesians 2, and let's read verses 1 through 10. Paul says there, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of this world, following, I'm sorry, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, notice verse 6, the language there, that we're raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places. That's what I want to emphasize. When we get there to verse 6, we'll camp out on that, but let's just first go through these verses in their order given to us in God's word. And you might notice that the first section really began on a, a bit of a sour note. You might call it the bad news. The bad news of spiritual death in verses 1 through 3. Paul writes these Ephesians... And he says that they were born and he was born. And he implies that we all were born. In fact, he explicitly says twice that all of mankind too was born in deadness and their sins keeping them from obeying. Their deadness being a deadness to God, a deadness to spiritual things, even where spirituality or religion abounds. You see, notice he says they're dead in verse 1, but verse 2, they once walked following the course of this world. They walk and yet they're dead. This is night of the living dead. This is, these are zombies. We all are born this way. We don't know it. We don't realize it. We think that we're alive because we notice our walking. We don't realize that our walking is a walking of death because it doesn't follow God in his way. It doesn't follow his course. Like Adam and Eve, it follows the course of this world. We follow, by nature, what's around us, what everyone else seems to be doing and what seems to be working. It's also, according to verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air. That's referring to Satan. Oh, I know it doesn't look like everyone's following Satan. Maybe you think those, you know, have dark black bumper stickers. You know, Wiccans or Satanists. They follow the prince of the power of the air, but not you, not, not me. But by nature, we're all following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. How do I know that we all follow Satan? Because we're all born of Adam and Eve. And they did. They did. They chose to follow the serpent and not the Lord. It's a spirit that's now at work in, he says, sons of disobedience, not sons of God's glory, not sons of obedience, not sons of honor, not sons that follow God's way, sons of disobedience. We do what our Father does. Jesus said in John 8, you lie because you follow your father. 
Your father is the father of lies, the devil. That's where lies come from. He also says that these Ephesians, and by extension, everyone who's ever lived, has lived in the passions of their flesh. They do what feels good. They're raw hedonists. They carry out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, sometimes it looks more religious. Sometimes it looks more white-collar than others. Sometimes it looks culturally innocent. Even good works can be done according to the desires of the body and the mind, according to the passions of our flesh. I mean, why do we do good when we're... when we're naturally just thinking about doing good apart from grace and apart from trying to glorify the Lord. Before grace stepped into your life, why did you do good? Well, to appease mom and dad, to get a, a boss off your back, to avoid harsh consequences, maybe to clear a guilty conscience, to manipulate circumstances around you, to manipulate people's impression of you. You see, even our best deeds can be done for self. Self is at the center of all that. So it might look differently for you than it did for me. It might look differently over there or in this country, in that country. It can look different in different cultures and among different people. But at the root, whether it looks less harmful than others, less evil than others, it's still, by nature, a carrying out of the desires of the body and the mind, and hence, we were by nature children of wrath, Paul says. Children of wrath. He doesn't mean angry kids, although I'm sure that's true too. But he means they're born under God's wrath. And they're not seeking to remedy it. They're not fleeing from the wrath to come, like John the Baptist preached. By nature, children under God's wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So this is our plight. The bad news is worse than you thought, I imagine. The bad news is not just that some of us mess up, or even all of us mess up, but God is kind and and he looks the other way if you are are well-intentioned. The Bible says that we're born part of a global rebellion, a whole race of rebellion. We're born against him and he, by nature, against us because he's holy and he's the judge. And if that's where it ended, well, we could just go home and weep. But it doesn't end there. There's good news right next to the bad news. The good news, secondly, we see is spiritual resurrection. If we're dead, then that's what it's going to take for it to be good news. It can't just be a bit of help. It it can't be a a pill that God gives us. It can't be a 12-step program that gets us out of the the downs, you know, the miry clay, depression, something like that. The trouble is so great, the solution must be nothing less than resurrection. And so those words that take that sharp right turn at verse 4, but God are wonderful. It doesn't say you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you had enough sense to not keep going down that path. God helped you. He talked some sense into you. It says, but God. It's all of him. 
He stepped in. He intervened. He awakened a dead heart. He opened blind eyes. The healing miracles of the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are really two things. One, it's Jesus caring for people and alleviating pain and hurt and brokenness in this world. They're also, though, a, a little word picture of a spiritual reality. It's a physical thing with a spiritual lesson. Here's what I mean. You've got blind people that Jesus heals in the New Testament. And you can't miss the fact that Scripture says that by nature we're all spiritually blind. You know, here it says we're spiritually dead. Other places it says we're spiritually blind. And we won't see. We won't find the answer on our own unless he opens our eyes. In fact, unless he gives us new eyes to see. Or you take the deaf. In Jesus' miracles, some were born deaf and he healed them and they could hear. And scripture says that spiritually speaking, we're all deaf. We don't hear. It doesn't go in. It doesn't sink down. We're like the idols that we follow. We have ears, but we don't hear. Or you think of the lame. Jesus healed the lame who couldn't walk. And scripture says that's a good description of where we are spiritually because we can't get up and go to him. We won't on our own come to him. He heals the lame and, and signals some hope to us that spiritually lame can be rescued as well. Legs spiritually fixed to run to him. Scripture sometimes calls sin like leprosy. It's a, it's a disease that stinks and stinks of death and is contagious and seems hopeless. And yet Jesus healed lepers in the New Testament to remind us that the sin... The leprosy of sin can also be healed. Now, Christians like to ask each other how they came to faith in Christ. What's the story behind moving from, from belief or from unbelief to belief? To not being a Christian, because no one's born a Christian, to becoming a Christian. We love to, to talk about those stories, and rightly so. We should. We should probably do more of it than we do. But when you tell those stories, if you're a Christian, the story of your conversion, you probably only tell, and this is fine, the experience of it, the story of it from the outside, what someone even could observe if they were writing this story down or making the movie of your testimony, your conversion. You know, you talk about the circumstances that went into it, the things that set you up to be desperate and needy and helpless and to see your sin and the people that spoke into your life, the people who talked to you about Christ and the cross, the, the Bible passages that you read and started to make sense and started to be clear to you when before they weren't. That's all good. But Ephesians 2 is giving us another level of explanation about your conversion story and my conversion story and these people in Ephesus in the first century. It gives us a behind-the-scenes look at what happened. It gives us an x-ray to the story. Here's what was going on behind the scenes. I know it only looked like that guy speaking to you with the gospel and loving you and and, and overhear these scriptures making sense and reading this book and hearing that sermon and you chewed on it, you chewed on it, you chewed on it and eventually it clicked. What was going on behind the scenes that God was using those human means, those circumstances and people to 
bring a click into your heart and life that only he can bring? Why does the gospel hit some people in the heart and it bounces right off like rubber? And other people hear the gospel, the same gospel message. It's not based on the cleverness of the preacher or the cleverness of the little book that presents the gospel. Some read or hear and they believe. Well, Acts 16 tells us the difference is the Lord opened the heart. There it says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive the things that she heard from Paul. She received what was said by Paul because the Lord had done open heart surgery before to prepare her for it. John 6, Jesus said there, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, reels him in. We wouldn't know to, I know fish don't want to leave the water and get out of the boat. Yes, they'll die, but let's just imagine it's the reverse. Imagine it's good to be reeled in, right? It's good to be caught. We don't know to go looking for the hook. It doesn't make sense to us. And and yet, in his grace, God not only offers salvation, but he does a spiritual work to open eyes, to open ears, to awaken hearts, so that we see and believe. Our plight was so bad, we needed nothing less than a resurrection. You see, it was not enough for Jesus to come down to earth and then show us the way to heaven or even to lead us from earth to heaven. He had to go all the way down to the grave to get us. That's where we were. That's what we deserve, spiritually speaking. He had to die and be raised to take us from death to life. So all hope rests on him. And that's why you see so often in the New Testament, and here in this passage, as well as any passage, that our hope is in Christ. It's with Christ. You see that? Look at verse 5. It's with Christ there. And then verse 6, twice it says, with him and with him. And then verse 6 again, in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 says, in Christ. Verse 10 says, in Christ Jesus. Six times in these short few verses, identity and hope, rescue, all wrapped up in a person, his life and his death. And that's why Paul says that if the resurrection didn't happen, this is in 1 Corinthians 15, he explores the what if. If the resurrection didn't happen, then faith in Jesus is meaningless. It's silly. And preaching the message of his death and resurrection for salvation is meaningless. It makes no sense. It's blasphemous to God, that message. It's harmful to people to proclaim it like they need it. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we're still in our sins. There's no solution to the sin problem out there. And if Jesus didn't die and raise him, wasn't raised from the dead, then those who die just die. Either they experience eternal punishment or they just die and life is just, just that. It's meaningless aimless. And he says, if that's the case, then we should live for ourselves. We should just live for our pleasures. We should eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. In other words, go back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. 
you might as well just walk according to your pleasures. How does it go when you walk according to your pleasures alone? It's pleasing at first, but it's emptying, isn't it? Like drinking Drano. Maybe it's cherry flavored Drano. Goes down good at first, but then it just, it just tears you up. We can't live for ourselves and for our pleasure alone. We weren't made to. We were made to live for a greater pleasure, one of God's presence. And God's presence can only be had through Christ, his death and resurrection for us. So Christians aren't those who are just forgiven and then on hold waiting for heaven to come along. You know, at least it's better than hell. But Christians are those who are forgiven and yet so much more. Their identity is bound up with Jesus. They're united to him, united to his death, united to his resurrection. They've been raised with him. And being raised with him happens in two stages. Eventually, in the new heaven and new earth, it means being raised with a a reuniting of our physical bodies in renewed resurrection physical bodies like Jesus already has. But not yet. The other stage of this resurrection happens spiritually at conversion as we believe. We believe because we've been raised. Raised with Christ. Raised, it says, to another realm in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, So this is... Resurrection times two, in a sense. There's a resurrection of mind and heart where we can come to see him for who he is. Our deadness of heart doesn't stop us from unbelief and blindness, but we're awakened to see and awakened to behold. And yet, verse 6 says, and we've been raised to the place where Christ is, a heavenly place. Oh, we're not there yet. One day we'll be there. One day the seed of the heavenly realm will blossom and be an oak tree in our experience. But Christians have something of it now, so let's camp out on this. This thing of being raised to a heavenly place in Christ Jesus. In our Good Friday service, I ended it with the teaser that this morning I would tell you what the resurrection of Jesus and the twilight zone have in common. And the answer is not that they're both fiction. The answer is not that they're both weird, but that they're both windows into another dimension. Oh, yes, I know the twilight zone is weird, right? you got the obsessive-compulsive guy who is a clean freak, and then cockroaches take over his life and come out of his mouth at the end. I love that one. Did you see it? And then there's the one, you know, the famous one of the werewolf man on the wing of the plane, and no one can see him but, but this guy. Okay, that's frightening. That's weird. I realize. But the way each one of those, those episodes began is really interesting. They always began with that narration. It changed a few times over the years. I looked it up on the web. But one version went like this. I wish we could cue the music right now. We can't. (laughs) There is a fifth dimension beyond which is known to man. 
It's a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. A dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. It is a wondrous land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've crossed over into the twilight zone. Okay, so that's talking about a weird fictional place. It's always dark, it's always depressing, it's never happy. But the resurrection is something like a fifth dimension, beyond which is known to us in our natural state. A dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. A dimension of sound and sight and mind. A wondrous land of shadow and substance of things and ideas. I'm talking about the new creation that comes in the resurrection where we're raised up with Christ and we're seated with him in heavenly places. Oh, it's mysterious, I know. It's weird, I know. But it's real. It's like the twilight zone and not like the twilight zone. It's like looking through a pair of glasses. Isn't it fun to be around someone who needed glasses for a long time and they put it off and put it off or maybe they didn't know they needed it. They thought everyone looked through that kind of vision and you know that was cloudy for everyone. And then they get new glasses. I remember seven years ago, I got glasses and I just drove my family crazy going, oh man, that... you do this all the time. Can you read that right there? Can you read that? No? You need glasses. I can read that. You know? Everything's so bright. The mountains. I didn't know the mountains had craggle things on them. I thought it was just this big block. No. Oh, it's fun to be around someone who's needed glasses for a long time and now can see, see vibrancy and detail in new ways. This new realm, this heavenly realm, that we have because of Christ's resurrection is something like when Frodo puts on the ring. He sees what was there, but invisible. And I know when he puts on the ring, it's dark and it's scary and he's going to get in trouble for doing it. And it makes him a worse person, not a better person. So it's not like the resurrection in every sense at all. But another realm, you get that, right? It's like the Matrix. You get plugged into the Matrix and, and actually that's the real world. It's not the Keanu Reeves world, you know, where they all have the torn sweaters. There's this other world where things are really cool, but it's digital and it's weird. Yes, I know. Why do we always have these stories about another realm? And the other realm is often the real one. What's real? Outside the wardrobe or inside? Right? I mean, at the beginning of the Narnia story, at first, this is like a, a weird dream. You're thinking, um, you're thinking the real world is the one outside of the wardrobe, but then pretty soon they start to become entwined, and pretty soon Narnia is more real than the mansion. The resurrection changes everything. It's a whole new reality. And this teaching isn't limited to a little phrase in Ephesians 2. We're not injecting a whole lot of theology to one verse here, although it's very plain what it says, but it's all through the New Testament. Let me show you some examples. Romans 6, 4. Paul says, We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. Not just the newness of life equals obedience, but the newness of life of another realm. We walk where Christ lives and walks. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's part of a new world. And the old has passed away. And some translations have, and behold, all things become new. All things are new now. Oh, I know it's a shadow. It's a seed. It's not yet the full-blown thing. But in a sense, there's another realm and all things are new. So Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us that he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He doesn't just say we have some spiritual blessings now. He says in heavenly places. And he doesn't just say that we will have spiritual blessings in the heavenly place when we get there. He puts it in past tense. We have, right? We've already been given. Ephesians 5 then says we should wake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Live in light of your resurrection in Christ. Colossians 2 says we were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And perhaps most clear, most thorough about this issue of a spiritual resurrection to a heavenly place is Colossians 3, where Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God, so set your mind on things above. Your citizenship is there, Philippians 3 says, so live there, live in light of it. It's not up there so much like you're supposed to live with your head in the clouds and you know, you're of so heavenly mindedness, you're of no earthly good. What he means is see the other realm in everything. See with new eyes and get better at seeing. Better at seeing means see his glory more frequently and see his purposes more vibrantly. The resurrection means a new perspective on everything. Money means something different for Christians than the world. It has different purposes for Christians in the world. It has different promises and different warnings. Marriage. Oh boy, that's a big window, right? There's symbolic factors there and reasons to love and sacrifice and, and serve in marriage that aren't there before. It's not just pragmatic anymore. Now it's a picture. Sex, or children, work, rest, exercise, learning. All of these things in Christ get added dimensions, rich layers, all kinds of new motivations, implications, promises, hopes, and aims. The nature of history gets redefined in the cross and resurrection of Christ. The future and what we hope. The earth and what it's there for and how we treat it. Government. Appearance. Beauty. Oh, I know we Christians don't look that much 
different. I know you don't hear us talk about this enough. I know you non-Christians think that our view of government is as weird as anyone's and it's as simple as anyone's. And beauty and creativity is done for the same reasons that you pursue beauty and creativity and love certain aesthetics. But the Bible tells us that Christians are those who are beginning to see another realm. In one way, you could say the New Testament letters like the book of Ephesians are there for no other reason than to flesh out the implications of a death Resurrection, new creation, reality in a thousand corners of life, right? So they talk about practical things. They talk about jobs and they talk about marriages and children and in government. Reasons to have meals, relationships, and how to deal with disappointment and failure and guilt and doubts. Listen to what Tim Keller pastor in Manhattan says to the extent that the future is real to you it will change everything about how you live in the present for example why is it so hard to face suffering why is it so hard to face disability and disease or even death why is it so hard to do the right thing if you know it's going to cost you money reputation maybe even your life It's so hard because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. It's easy to feel as if this money is the only wealth we'll ever have, as if this body is the only one we'll ever have. But if Jesus is risen, then your future is so much more beautiful and so much more certain than that. Only the resurrection, he says, promises us not just new minds and hearts, but also new bodies. Ordinary life is what's going to be redeemed. There's nothing better than ordinary life, except that it's always going away and always falling apart. Ordinary life is food and drink and chairs by the fire and hugs and dancing in mountains. God loves us so much that he gave his only son, so we, the rest of this ordinary world, could be redeemed and made perfect. And that's what's in store for us. And if you know that this is not the only world, the only body, the only life that you're ever going to have... Who cares what people do to you? You're free from ultimate anxieties in this life. So you can be brave. You can take risks. You can face the worst thing with joy and with hope. This new perspective is explained in the last few verses here of Ephesians 2, at least our section of Ephesians 2. We could call them the results, and there are three of them. Three results. The first is grace displayed. Notice verse 7 begins with, so that. He tells us a a why, a what for. So that. Here's why he did it. To show off his grace. That in the coming ages and throughout all eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His kindness is in Christ Jesus. It's immeasurable grace that's been heaped upon us. And our God is eager to show that grace. And he's shown that grace in the cross and resurrection of Christ. Where he died in our place, died for our sins, and was raised for our justification. Do you know that forgiveness? Have you 
begun to cling to that gospel, that gospel hope. And you say, I don't know, I'm not sure yet. And there's this whole new realm now, it's not just up to me. You're saying something about God, I'm going to open my heart, open my eyes, open my ears, give me spiritual legs to walk to him. How do I deal with that now? Well, for one, pray. Seek him and pray that he will be seeking you. You may just find that in your seeking after him, he all along was seeking you and giving you eyes to see, minds to apprehend what his word says. But go to where, is, where, where, where things click. You see, he has to give the click. The penny has to drop on, on his doing. But you go to the Bible and you read it. You, you go to a church like this and you, you listen to preaching, teaching, to, to, to get the wheels turning. And maybe God in his grace will bring a click, a saving click, a glorious click that raises you from darkness to light, from death to life, and not just life to see and behold, but life to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. Or maybe you think, this is all so lofty, right? I, I came here thinking I was a Christian, but how do I know that he's done this to me? Well, do you believe? Do you believe in grace through faith in Christ alone? Then guess what? He's moved you from darkness to light. He's awakened your heart to see. The result is that grace is displayed. The second result is that God is glorified. The end of verse 9, he tells us this is not a result of work. It's by grace. It's received through faith, just believing, just trusting. Why? So that no one may boast. So that we don't get the credit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God saves in such a way that no flesh can glory in itself. God's eager to get his glory displayed and for us to know it. So we don't boast in ourselves. We're not ultimate. He is. He has the goal of being glorified and our boast being in him. And this is the heartbeat of a new creation. That's the third result. Verse 10, there's a new creation hinted at here. For we are his workmanship. Could be translated craftsmanship. His clever ingenuity. We're part of his master plan. Not because we're so good. No, he loved us, but not because we're lovely. Not by nature. He loved us because he chose to love us for his glory. He loves us in such a way that no one may boast. But having set his love upon us, he turns us to himself. And part of his plan is that we're in Christ Jesus. We're part of his craftsmanship. Oh, I know it doesn't look so great yet. But we're part of his craftsmanship and he will finish the job. And we are to walk in the good works that he's assigned us. It's part of a new creation reality that's already come. So N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says, the resurrection of Jesus offers itself not as an odd event within the world as it is, but as a prototypical and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. It is not an absurd event within the old world, 
but the symbol and starting point of the new world Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not simply a new ethic, or even a new way of salvation, but a whole new creation. Could it be? I believe it is, because God's word says it. Let's pray that we would apprehend it and know it. Father, we pray for those here who haven't yet come to believe, either in Jesus' death and resurrection on their behalf, or in anything beyond that, any of the gifts that come as a result of that good and final work he's done. We pray, Lord, you'd give faith. We pray you'd awaken dead hearts to see, to believe, to cling to you, and to enter in a new spiritual reality, bigger than ourselves and bigger than this world. We pray for Christians, Lord, to see this new world with our new eyes as much as we can, more than we used to, to see its vibrancy, to see its brilliant colors and layers and layers. Lord, we pray that the victory of Christ on our behalf would awaken us daily to your glory in all of creation. It's in his blood and in his resurrection victory that we have such great hope and and would have the basis, Lord, the reason to ask you for such great and lofty things. But you bring them to pass, Lord, in your doing. It is your doing. We are your workmanship. It is to your glory. And we boast not in ourselves, but only in you, in Jesus, our Savior. Amen.